0: Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhassa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato sammāsambuddhassa Buddhaṃ dhammaṃ sankham As always, it's very lovely to see you all here, and uh, it's a great joy to see people wanting to come and uh, share this space and be here together in this way. Uh, and uh, of course, uh, seeing something like this, I, I'm inspired to want to uh, deliver something marvellous and uplifting and, and helpful, and so that's my wish. However, <laughs> we've had an all day trust meeting today um, from I don't know what time this morning until uh, four o'clock in the afternoon. The trustees were here talking about dissolving the Magga Bhavaka Trust um, and reestablish or setting up the Hanan Buddhist Monastery Trust. Twenty uh, something years ago the, this well intentioned bunch of local yokels. Started this thing called the Mugabe Trust, and it was all very good uh, for the time. However, the times have changed, and situations changed, and the trustee uh, isn't actually very useful anymore. And uh, but to change a trustee, as probably most of you can appreciate, is a lot of work. So today we've been working really hard. And I have the greatest admiration for the trustee's ability and willingness to go through all this. I even have a little respect for myself as well. Uh, <laughs> and Ajinabhinando, who uh, we went through this together. Um, so please forgive me if I waffle on this evening in an inane uh, ramble. But there is something I wanted to talk about, and that's, that's this uh, business of beliefs. Uh, I want to talk about it tonight because it's come up uh, several times over the last well, the last week, or maybe the last week or two, but particularly the last week, I think. Um, you see, my memory is such, I can't even really remember. And I'll probably say things tonight that I maybe even said last week. Uh, so please forgive me in advance. However, I think this is an important matter and, and even worth considering a second time. Just not what do Buddhists believe, but how do we relate to beliefs? Because the power of beliefs is very significant, isn't it? Um, One of the things that prompted me to contemplate this was something I I saw recently about a movie. I read or saw something on the the news about a movie that's been made in America called Camp Jesus, or Jesus Camp or something. And it's uh, about these radical evangelicals who uh, send their children off to camp to train them to uh, basically be warriors for Jesus. And one of the women who was promoting this, one of the evangelical preachers, uh, was, was going on how she wants them to be like Islamic jihadists, but for Jesus, to be willing to die for Jesus and and this presentation, the fervor, the enthusiasm, the energy, the focus, the drive, the commitment there, it was uh, noticeable. Um, but it hit me somewhere somewhere in my my system that really didn't feel happy at all. Uh, I didn't feel comfortable at all, and so that gave me cause to to think about beliefs and and soon after that was that situation where uh, some uh, religious extremist uh, heckled John Reed, I think. I'm not sure what position he holds in the government, but he's somebody important. And uh, this religious extremist heckled him and accused him of all sorts of things. And um, later on, when this uh, this heckler was interviewed about, you know, if you don't like the way things are in this country... Uh, why don't you go and you know, live somewhere where the how you like them to be? He said, oh no, he said, Allah created the world and he wants Sharia law to be everywhere. So my job is to stay here in this country and to make sure we have Sharia law here. That's my job and that's what I'm going to work towards. And so some of you might have heard this interview with, with that um, John Humphreys fellow who's no pushover. Uh, but John Humphreys really had his work cut out to stand his ground with this this fellow. This fellow was so focused, so focused, intelligent, clever, focused, driven, uh, energetic, committed. But was it uh, helpful? When John Humphreys asked him, and said, well, if you want to influence things in this country, why don't you get yourself elected in the democratic process? He said, oh, no, democracy is completely against Allah's wish. And so he asked him straight, you know, do you, you don't believe in democracy? Oh, no, absolutely not. And so this again really kind of hit the same place really within me where I felt threatened really. I think that was the feeling when I hear this kind of talk and it got me contemplating this whole issue of, of fundamentalism and where beliefs turn toxic and of course, started thinking about Buddhists, you know what do we Buddhists believe in? What do Buddhists believe in? And do we hold our beliefs in a way that is perhaps generating that feeling for others? You know, do we come across like that? You know I listen to my, the tapes of my talk sometimes and check to see that I 'm not sounding like a, a ranting evangelical. I was preaching by the age of thirteen, I think in the pulpit. You know I come from generations of, of fundamentalists and evangelicals and and I want to be careful that i don 't sound like that i don 't want to have that effect on people. so what is it that that what energy is being generated there, and how can we avoid falling into that and into that uh, well, I see it as a trap, and I think it 's to do with uh, on that question that I posed in the beginning, not just what do we believe, but how do we believe? How do we hold our beliefs? As we're all aware, I expect the uh, Buddha's teaching on the spiritual faculties, you know, the, the motivator for practice, the first of the faculties the Buddha talked about was uh, faith. Hmm. Satcha in Pali. Now, we could translate that as um, trust, confidence, faith. Many people object to the the word faith because it it uh, has a connotation of blind faith. Um, and so they would shy away from that. And then again, beliefs. Many people shy away from the word beliefs. And there's Stephen Batchelor's book, I think it's called Buddhism without belief. Is that something like that? Somebody told me I should read it because they thought it, they said it sounds very much like your teaching, and I wasn't sure to be complimented or insulted. Um, I, I mean, I like Stephen; he's a fine uh, and impressive man, and a great scholar. However, I, I wouldn't advocate uh, a teaching about Buddhism without beliefs because I, my reading of the of the teachings and my Uh, receiving of the teachings from the great masters and the teachers I've lived with over the years is that uh, beliefs are very important to the Buddha's teaching. Uh, We we are asked to believe certain things. We are asked to believe or to trust or to have faith, for instance, in the the Buddha's enlightenment. Uh, That it is possible to be free from suffering. We are asked to trust that. Now, What's the difference between trust and belief and faith? All of these words kind of go together and, and probably all of us have our own particular usage of them, but I think there's a, there's a theme that goes through all of them. I, I think in my, in my own mind when I, I use these words, like, for instance, if, I, um, if I, I'm going to sit down on a chair, as I approach that chair, basically part of me has trust, confidence faith, belief, that the chair will support me. If I don't believe that, if I don't trust that, if I don't have confidence in that, if I don't have that feeling, then I'll be afraid and I'll check it. It'll change my behaviour. Well, likewise with the, uh, the three refuges, Buddha Dhamma Sangha, As Buddhists, as followers of the Buddha, we are asked to have faith, have confidence, have trust, or even believe, if you like, in the Buddha. But believing or having faith or confidence or trust in the Buddha doesn't mean to say that we're not allowed to ask questions. And so I think this is the point. I think this is is a very important point, that the kind of faith we have is determined by whether there's right mindfulness there or not. I mean right mindfulness. Yeah, the right mindfulness... When we've got faith or trust in the Buddha, the Buddha was enlightened, the Buddha knew what he was talking about, that doesn't mean to say that when doubts arise, and say, well, maybe the Buddha didn't know what he was talking about. that That's wrong. If we're grasping at the faith, or the belief, or the trust, or the conviction that the Buddha was enlightened, the Buddha knew what he was talking about. If we're grasping at that, it can produce a tremendous amount of energy. But what happens when we're grasping like that, it means that when doubt arises, we automatically assume the doubt is wrong. We reject the doubt. We can't tolerate doubt. We don't tolerate doubt if we grasp at our faith. So for Buddhists, I would suggest that The faith that we have is a motivator for taking us on the path of practice. Yes, it generates energy. Sadha is the first of the five spiritual faculties, and then Virya is the second. You know, faith can generate varya or energy. Hmm. And we need that in practice. But then the third factor of the the third of the five spiritual faculties is is mindfulness. This mindfulness is watchfulness. It's always, it's always checking. You know that, that that image that we've talked about many times—the Buddha talked about mindfulness—is is like the gatekeeper standing at the gate of the city walls, you know, seeing who comes and goes. This is watchfulness. Or, you know, I think of it these days as like a, the desk receptionist in a hotel, just sees who comes and goes. The receptionist watches, doesn't follow the guests up to the room. That's the concierge's job. It doesn't follow them outside. That's the bellboy going to call the taxi. But the that one that sits there in the same place and watches the coming and going. That's mindfulness. That watching the coming and going. So with our faith, with mindfulness, then faith faith can actually be questioned. You know, we can we're allowed to as Buddhists we're allowed to doubt the Buddha so long as there's mindfulness. Now, if we're grasping at the faith, we're grasping at our belief, we're grasping at our trust, yeah, we can get lots of energy from it, but then when doubt arises, either we reject it or deny it, push it away, get rid of it, this is an enemy, got to get rid of it, this is threatening me, or we go and grasp the doubt, and so then we take a position against the Buddha, or against whatever it is we had faith in. Whereas if there's mindfulness then this faith takes us to energy and it supports us in our spiritual inquiry. And then the other factors, concentration and wisdom. The wisdom is the real point of developing these five spiritual faculties. And on this point, it's very interesting, where uh, probably most of you will remember where the Buddha talked to uh Sariputta and asked him, Do you have faith that these five spiritual faculties, when developed fully, matured fully, lead to liberation? And Venerable Sariputta said, no, Lord, I don't have faith. He said, I know they do. And that's different. And the Buddha was quite clear there's a difference between faith, which is functional, a motivator, and knowledge, which is the result. That's the point. So the faith has a function, but it's not the end product. We're not just having faith. You know, just to have faith in the Buddha is not the point, really, of being a Buddha. So not to just have faith in the Dhamma or faith in the Sangha. We have faith in these things, but we have them with mindfulness. So we have faith in the Buddha, and we can, we can question the Buddha, we can question the Buddha's enlightenment, but it's done in a mindful way, in a respectful way. We have faith in the Dhamma. In the Buddha's teaching, we're asked to accept, like the the teachings, the conventional right view that the Buddha taught. You were asked to accept, on trust, the teachings on karma. The the law of karma is is very, very complicated. There's some things, in fact, the Buddha said, uh, you shouldn't even think about it. The law of karma, the Buddha said, is not something that you want to assume you can understand very quickly. It's very, very complicated. And yet we are asked to take it on trust. The law of karma is true. And then, and then to investigate it. Then to investigate in our minds. So, the faith that motivates us, gives us energy, and then with mindfulness, we hold these teachings, we go forward with them, and then if something comes along on our own mind and contradicts us, or if something comes along from outside and contradicts our view. You know, maybe somebody comes along and challenges us on our dumber beliefs and uh, comes up with a really good argument for, for why the Buddha was wrong. If we've got right mindfulness, well, we say, oh, that's interesting. I say, oh, maybe I'll look again at that point. Whereas if we're grasping... And this is not just something to, you know, take on intellectually, but something to feel, Emily. If we're grasping at our appreciation of Dhamma, and then somebody comes along and contradicts us, like, you know, maybe we're a died in the wool Theravadan Buddhist. We're absolutely committed to the Theravadan way, and then somebody comes along with some really clever, sophisticated Mahayana teaching and uh, and they, they tell us, Oh, you Theravadans have got it all wrong. up comes the energy you start getting kind of all uppity and start coming up with some nasty put down from Ahianists and argue with them that's what leads to arguments isn't it so we we, um, obviously uh, we've all seen this and arguments and worse than arguments over religious beliefs uh, come is it the result of the beliefs is that what causes the argument? Is that what causes the passion to come up? Because there's only an argument if there's passion. If there's an interesting debate on a point, that doesn't mean say it's not a wild, hot-tempered argument. There can be an enthusiastic, energetic debate. That's also all right. But a hot-tempered argument only comes about because the passions flare up. And so why do the passions flare up? Well it's something that we are encouraged to investigate but the the indicator, the pointer that we're actually encouraged to look at is just to see where and when and how we grasp better a a thought form, a belief that then creates a rigidity in our hearts in our system and then pulls the energy up and we get impassioned. Now that passion can be inspiring in you know, um, you know, my earlier, my, my childhood, I heard many impassioned preachers. You get this enthusiasm, this thumping the holy book and this ranting and, and there's a tremendous energy. And you, you did you ever go to Billy Graham crusades? I used to get dragged along to these Billy Graham crusades and, and these people weeping tears go up and, and say all sorts of things in front of the crowd and, because the force of conviction you know a charismatic figure a charismatic figure somebody who really believes absolutely in what they're saying has tremendous force and tremendous influence and so this is one of the characteristics of fundamentalist organizations and it's, it's very interesting to uh, study a little of what the jungians have to say about i found it interesting to study a little bit of what the jungians have to say about fundamentalism as a as a psychological disposition and how uh, what what happens in fundamentalist organizations the characteristic of these organizations yes they can have tremendous energy but there's usually there's usually a, a whole section of of no-go areas this is one of the characteristics of fundamentalist organizations you're not allowed to ask certain questions you're not allowed to question the teacher mm. Like in the Buddhist community, uh, the Buddha encouraged questions. Now, this is not just to say that we've got it all right, but because you know, that's that's uh, that's not very helpful. But to consider the example the Buddha gave, like with regards to going for refuge to the Buddha Dhamma Sangha, going for refuge to the Sangha doesn't mean to say that, that we have to accept uh, everything that the Sangha says. Yeah. On this point, it's also perhaps important and useful maybe at this time to, to say just something a little bit about what the, in the Theravadan tradition anyway, what is meant by the Sangha. Because, uh, these days, there's a very different appreciation has evolved the last 30 years, uh, since Buddhism came to the West. There's been a, a much broader interpretation and usage of the word. But for the previous 2,500 and something years, the, the understanding of the Sangha as a refuge, there's, there's two things. There's the conventional Sangha, and then there's the noble Sangha. The noble Sangha is those who have arrived at an unshakable realization of Dhamma, that is, Sotapanna, Sakadagami, Anagami, Arahant, stream enters, once-returners, non-returners, and enlightened beings. So anybody, whether they're a monk or a nun or a, nun or a layman or a laywoman, can be a member of that noble Sangha. That's possible. And so then the other aspect of the Sangha is the conventional Sangha. That's the noble Sangha. The conventional Sangha is the ordained monks and nuns, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis. And the Buddha encouraged these two as an object of refuge because they set, or they're supposed to set, a worthy example of inspiration, encouragement and practice. Even though they are encouraged as an object of respect and, um, and refuge, that doesn't mean to say that we're not allowed to question them. When it gets to the point where the teacher says you're not allowed to question them, that you have to accept everything the teacher says is right, well, personally, I feel that that's really tricky territory. Um, it may well be um, that in other cultures, and sometimes in Asian cultures, that there are ways of presenting the teachings where that sort of model... Um, perhaps works for people. But uh, I I personally would question it in in our culture. I think the way our egos, the way our personalities, the way our characters are structured, unless we have a really thoroughly integrated, matured, balanced sense of authority within ourselves, that if we are asked or required to accept somebody else's ultimate authority in our life, what it does is it tends to make us weak and even stupid. And what happens is we project our authority, our ability, out onto that person in an unhelpful way. So certainly, anyway, in Theravadan Buddhism, this is not something that's encouraged, to project that authority out onto another person. Yes, to respect, but always to be willing and to feel free and able to ask questions. So if we have that, if we have that understanding... Then I think that's a way of protecting ourselves from getting caught up in fundamentalism. And, and fundamentalism is very tempting, yeah, and not just not just religious fundamentalism. Yeah, all of us can think of, of political fundamentalists. You know, as, uh, who have one, another one of the characteristics of a fundamentalist is a simplistic solution to complex problems. These are two actually helpful things to remember. These, not a no-go areas where you're not allowed to ask questions in certain areas, and then also this handing out simplistic solutions to complex problems. They always come out with the same answer, whatever you ask. And life is not simple, actually. Okay, when the Buddha presented his teaching thankfully he presented it uh, he did simplify the complexity down to like the four noble truths which is something that we can get our heads around and the eightfold path and these teachings are very clear and straightforward however within this there's tremendous complexity and subtlety and sophistication of understanding that's required and so uh to grasp at simplistic answers to things. is probably a warning sign if we see it in ourselves or we see it in others. And again it's a saying whether it's in religious organizations or whether it's in political or uh, ecological mm. ecological fundamentalists. Yeah. When there's a belief in something and if the psychological make-up is such that that we're inclined, conditioned, programmed, whatever, to grasp that belief, it can give this tremendous energy, the narrowing of attention around the belief, the sense of being right. It's delicious. I just love being right. I don't know about you, but I, I really love being right. I can really get off on it when I'm right about something. I just haven't been under his rule. <laughs> this feels so good. Yeah. But that's not something you want to grasp. I think he feels the same way, actually. I think to some degree, on one level, that's the way—that's what the ego likes. Now, if we're mindful, we see these tendencies. We don't pretend we don't have them. Now, there may be some of you who are very attained and don't have these tendencies, but I would suggest for the rest of us, it's good to just be honest about it when we have these beliefs about ourselves, like I am right and you are wrong. This is where prejudice comes from, isn't it? You don't like the colour of somebody or you don't like the smell or, <laughs> or you don't like the sound. You don't like somebody's accent. Um, it wasn't so long ago in this country that if you didn't have the right kind of accent you couldn't move through society. You couldn't get a, a decent job. You, thankfully that's, that's changed quite a lot now. But again, this is where prejudice comes from. not Not that we shouldn't have... Preferences. Not that we shouldn't have a feeling of like enjoying being right. You know, if we enjoy being right, that's just so. But we can watch it, and so our relationship to beliefs, preferences, is, is is as important, if not more important, as what it is we have preferences for and against, or beliefs for and against. So it's outer worldly situations, and also our spiritual life, but also things like our self-views. We can watch this as well, the way we believe, what we believe about ourselves. Somebody was telling me the other day, I can't remember who it was exactly, but somebody, somebody quite successful in their life was telling me how as a child, their father used to tell them, you are absolutely useless and you always will be. You're never going to amount to anything. Now, that's not a very nice thing for a father to say. Um, Unfortunately, there are people around who talk to their kids like that. To some degree, probably all of us have had some sort of conditioning uh, in our early life. And we carry these beliefs with us. Do you remember Sue Warren? Lovely Sue. Bless her. Wherever she is now, I hope she's well. And Sue used to tell me how when she was a young girl and she would go to church... And she was told that she was a wicked sinner. And she said, somehow she just couldn't believe it. And so she used to, under her breath, she would say, I am not a sinner. I am not a sinner. I am not a sinner. <laughs> and that protected her until she said she came across the Bhikkhu Dirawangsa, a time monk who was here, who gave her another interpretation on life. And she said, oh, I knew I was right. <laughs> So that's actually something we can do is with these beliefs that we have we can simply counter them yeah. there's uh all those uh, like self affirmations which sometimes the new age movement makes sounds a bit a bit uh a bit naff but it has its place you know self affirmation like if we if we think that we're sick all the time we got you know you're a weakling and, and uh you're sick and you can't do it yeah you know, to mindfully observe and say, well that's just a belief and you can assume the other belief you can just assume it mindfully assume it and you can say, I can do it and you can do this with all sorts of things in your mind I've noticed, this with, I've used this myself that beliefs that I have about myself or, or about others come into the mind and seeing where there can be attachment to those beliefs or you know prejudice or whatever we can counter them mindfully and just voice the opposite like if you make a mistake and you you know you wish you hadn't done it and you start getting really heavy you've been conditioned to get really heavy on yourself i'm really hopeless i'm really no good i just keep doing the same thing over and over again i'm really a lousy s- slob and you know such a perception of yourself is not very helpful but how do you get out of it well you know you you can just accept the opposite momentarily yeah. intentionally so say I am a really, really fine fellow. I'm an exceptionally talented, phenomenally able, extraordinarily attractive, and stunningly intelligent. You don't have to laugh, but... <laughs> We're talking about functional beliefs here. <laughs> this is... <laughs> what I'm pointing out is that we can use beliefs. We can use beliefs skillfully, so long as there's mindfulness. So the Buddhist beliefs that we're asked to hold mindfully. Yeah. And these self-beliefs, these are things we can use creatively in our practice. But I would suggest that the, the all-important factor there is, is, is not just what we believe, but how we believe it, how we hold to it. And, and the, the barometer, the litmus test, is that when we get impassioned, when the passions flare up, it's probably, almost certainly, the case that we were holding to some belief in an inappropriate way. So for us, when the passions flare up, that doesn't mean to say we go out and kill somebody for the Buddha. Yeah. Rather, it means that we actually say, this is where I'm actually killing the Buddha. This is where I'm destroying the Buddha. When I allow those passions to flare up and obscure the possibility of, of real wisdom, real understanding, that's where I'm destroying Dhamma. That's where I'm obscuring reality. And so when these issues come up, um, whether, you know, whatever sort of fundamentalist or evangelical that we we encounter, is it's on the news or in our daily life, uh, and we feel threatened, oh. my commitment is that in, instead of just letting the energy of the... Like, you feel threatened, you want to react to something to get rid of the enemy, rather to take that, to take it in and to feel feeling threatened. Because feel, that's, that's still a limitation. When we feel threatened... It's because we're holding to a belief of ourselves as somehow limited. Only a limited being can be threatened. Mm. A limitless being can't be threatened. The Buddha never felt threatened by anything. Because the Buddha was limitless. And we feel threatened because we're limited. We're holding to limited views of ourselves. All forms of clinging limit ourselves. And so whenever we feel threatened, in whatever way... Our practice is to take it on as something to train in in mindfulness, to get deeper in our practice, to see just where and when and how is it that I'm holding to some belief, some conviction, some conditioned fixed position that is limiting me. And with that attitude, actually, we can change our view even towards that which threatens us. Instead of perceiving that which threatens us as an enemy, to some degree, we can appreciate it perhaps not immediately at that point, but maybe later on, when we really learn how to let go of that limited perspective on reality, then there can be real gratitude. So I hope that these uh, thoughts this evening are of some support in your contemplation. Thank you very much for your attention.